Welcome back, listeners, to another Egg Watchers podcast. We've got an actually very special guest this time around, an international superstar of water. It's Jay Familietti, and he is Chief Scientist of uh, Water Plan and uh, Envir- uh, was Chief Scientist of Water Plan and Environment. He's also a professor of um, School of Environment and Sustainability at University of Saskatchewan, and he was a former Chief Scientist at NASA Jet Propulsion. Uh, lab. He's also a fellow podcaster, Andrew, uh, with a podcast called What About Water, which I think you've listened to a few episodes of and was very intrigued by. And we've seen a bit of um, bit of Jay in the news, so we thought we could uh, we could get him on to have a chat about water since it's such an important issue for Australia. Thanks for coming well, on, Jay. Well, well, the idea to get G- the idea to get Jay on was I was I was suffering with with uh, the old COVID lergy. and I watched a documentary on on Amazon Prime called Day Zero, which I recommend. Uh, and it was scary, and I uh, I didn't want to get out of bed after that. So I thought, oh, let's reach out. And I noticed that Jay had been on, you know, all of the big shows, Bill Mayer, uh, the Today Show, all BBC. And I thought, well, let's give him an opportunity to get to the big time and come on Ag Watches. <laughs> <laughs> so Jay, thanks for thanks for coming along. Oh, I appreciate it. I've I've made it now. This is going straight to the top of my resume. Wait, wait, well, one, wait. once you once I hear about you, you'll get all these. You'll be inundated with calls from Australian media to say, uh, "Can we have a chat, Joe?" You, you have yeah. you have the, you have the ABC on uh, next week. Fantastic chat. Um, so we'll get straight into it. Uh, how we start our podcasts is through psychological testing, <laughs> and mm. so we have the uh, Sixth Sense program. So we're going to fire off a, a couple of words or phrases to you, and we just want the first thing that comes to your mind, either a sentence or a very short statement. So, Matt. Fresh water supply. Trouble. Aquifers. Threatened. <laughs> uh, Crocs footwear. <laughs> Uh, I have never been able to get into it. Haggis. Don't know what it means. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, desalination. Um, good in some places, not appropriate in others. Climate change. Um, biggest threat of modern times. There we go. Right, very oh, good. He su- a- I think he survived. Apart from the survived. not knowing what yeah, Haggis is, apart from uh, not knowing what no, Haggis is, he, but, he, is, he gets a mark. What is it? Is it like what? What did it tell me again? It's like a sausage or something. It's it's one of the best sausages of all time. It's uh, the Scottish <laughs> national dish. It's. Uh, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's uh, well, we have a podcast all about the making of Haggis, uh, but <laughs> I'm gonna it, go find it. It is. Um, the end, well, lungs, heart, and liver cooked inside a sheep's stomach with oats and spices. It's beautiful. That sounds delightful. <laughs> so that would be like uh, if I asked you about Tim Hortons and you didn't know what it was. Like if I say Tim Hortons, you know what it is? No. Coffee. Coffee. Wait, is it? Is it? Yeah, it's a donut. It's a, it's donut. It's a donut, donut shop. Yeah, yeah. It's a national donut chain. Yeah, coffee's close. Mm. Anyway, okay. right So tell us, Jay, tell us a bit about... One of the things that I noticed in the documentary is you were talking about the NASA uh, Grace program, and it's good to get our first rocket scientist on the episode. Yeah. Yep. And so, yeah. t- tell us what what was the NASA Grace program, and what was the purpose? Well, of it? still, it's still still ongoing. It stands for Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. It's a satellite. Um, it's actually a pair of small satellites. That's unusual in that um, it's it um, measures changes in Earth's gravity field. And from that, we're able to, and I'll, I'll try to explain it, but uh, from that, we're able to infer the places around the world that are gaining or losing water on a monthly basis. So you can track the monthly ups and downs basically everywhere, uh, as well as the long-term trends. So, so it's so, a mission that, yeah, go ahead, sorry. So is, so is that water above ground, like rivers and lakes or? Oh yeah, okay, let me, let me dive into it just a little bit. So um, what it really sees is the change in the, total amount of water, all of the snow and the surface water, the soil moisture, the groundwater underground together. Um, and the way it does that is you know, very simply, when there's more water on the ground, that area exerts a greater gravitational tug on these satellites and it pulls them down a little bit closer to the earth, 
But when there's less water on the ground, say because of a drought or too much you know, groundwater overdraft, that region has lost water weight, it starts lesser gravitational tug. Okay. So the actual measurement is the ups and downs of the satellite. So I like to say it's like a scale, right? And so it moves up and down, just like if you stood on a scale, like it would get you know, depressed more if you were heavier, depressed less if you were, and I know that's depressing. Uh, but so the satellites move up and down like a, like a balance. So, uh, sorry, so Jay, keep, with, with, that, with that measurement, you're talking about water that's in its fre- like freshwater form. It's not measuring water trapped in ice or water no, that's measure- in vapor or? It's measuring all of the water in the area that the grad, that the satellites are sensing. And so it's a big sort of footprint of like 150,000 square kilometers, which is about the size of a good sized river basin. But it's actually telling you the mass change that's happening in that river basin. And on those time scales, about 99% of the mass change is water. Um, so it's, the, it's our job as, as scientists, not your job, but our job as scientists to figure out Okay, so if you're looking in Australia, you're looking at, uh, uh, you know, whichever, whichever you're looking around Melbourne or something, you know, it's our job to go figure out um, what what's going on. And so it takes other other data and local knowledge and all that. Right. So we didn't just like you don't just look at the map. It's like, you know, you're a doctor and and uh, some uh, doctor gives you like a readout of, of what's been happening with your weight over the last 20 years. You know, up, you're the up, one who up, really knows. Up, yeah, up, right. Up, but you're up, the up. one who really knows. Oh, yeah. Like, I was training for a marathon, so I lost a bunch of weight. Oh, like, I was, you know, eating a lot of food because it's COVID and so, you know, I gained a bunch of weight. So that's kind of how it is. You got to go get that uh, extra data. So I always understood about water that, like, it can be in three forms. Right? So you got liquid water, you got gas, and you got yeah. the ice. And, and at any given time, there's only a set amount of water on the planet right it's just in those different forms so is the issue and the concern that we're running out or is the issue that it's just in the wrong places or in the wrong forms or or is well what's the actual because because we've always had this same amount of water it's the latter yeah it's it's the latter so yeah but the amount of water on the planet hasn't really changed they're very very minor amounts some gets destroyed at the top of the atmosphere and you know we lose some to you know through plate tectonics and so, but, but that's very minor amounts. Um, so for all practical purposes, the amount of water on the planet is, is fixed. And yeah, it's exactly what you said. It's, it's, it's moving around from place to place. Um, and so mostly what we are sensing is the solid and the liquid water. The vapor doesn't actually weigh that much. Hmm. The water vapor in the atmosphere is super important, of course, for climate and rainfall and, and drought and, you know, uh, but, but it doesn't weigh much at all. So really what we're looking at is the movement of water on the continents, where are they moving, where is it moving on the continents, and how also is it moving from the land to the ocean and from the ice sheets to the ocean and what that global water cycle looks like. So, 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 so it's focused on fresh water as well in terms of that's the, that's the crucial part of the analysis is what how much fresh water rather than how much water that's not that's usable. What we, that's what we look at. So the other, my colleagues are looking at sea level rise and how much water is going in, how much of that fresh water is going into the ocean and contributing to sea level rise. And there, there's a lot. Um, but yeah, the part that has been really a lot of uh, fun from a research perspective, but also quite compelling from a science perspective is for the first time being able to see how that water is moving around on the land. Like what are the rates of change? what's happening with groundwater, what's happening with melting glaciers, what's happening with flooding and drought, to be able to see that, I keep saying for the first time, but it's been 20 years now, uh, but but still it's a relatively new uh, kind of data and one that's just given us so much information. And again, it's it's all it's all pretty compelling because those rates of change are pretty quick. So, so what was the biggest concern that you found when looking at data? What was, what was the biggest thing that well, screams so, uh, out to you? Well, okay, I'll answer that in two ways. First, when we first started, the biggest concern was like, what the heck are we looking at? Um, and is it, is it correct? And so we spent years doing that. I mean, this thing launched in 2002 and we worked, I mean, we still do it. Every time we do a study, we're always comparing to observations to make sure that it matches what, you know, what we can put together on the ground. And, and it does. Um, but then from there, it was really the groundwater, uh, the realization that some of these hot spots for places that were losing a lot of water 
uh, were aquifers. And it started with our first paper in 2009. We were looking at India, Northwestern India. And, uh, you know, imagine, you know, groundwater use so great that it's changing the mass of the region and affecting these satellites. They're literally 400 kilometers up in space. So that, that for us was a real eye opener. And then we started looking at the data as they were coming in and realizing, like looking globally and realizing, oh, okay, like that's another aquifer. Like, oh, oh, that's another aquifer until it was like, oh my gosh, like this is a crazy global phenomenon here that, you know, people are not really aware of and one that's really critical for food and water sustainability. Does it, does it take a lot of time for an aquifer to, to replenish or, or is it, you know, is the kind of use such that, you know, if you're using it in a dry time, but then like, see in Australia, there's parts of Australia now that have been inundated with water. Um, so yeah. some listening to this might be saying, we don't need any more water here. But how well, long yeah, does it take? A lot, 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 lot of farmers in Australia can't plant their crops at the moment because it's too wet. Yep. Yeah. So, yep. But is, does that water, even though it's falling on the ground, it, does it take some time to replenish an aquifer? It does. And it really just depends on um, a, a couple of things. One, how close the aquifer is to the surface and, of course, its composition. So I used to live in Texas and the aquifers, they were close to the surface and they were limestone, had big open caves, right? Holes at the surface. You could just literally pour water in and, and refill these things. And so they were very flashy, lots of, lots of up and down. Um, and, you know, sand and gravel aquifers and things that are close to the surface can be replenished quite easily and if there's enough rain but it's the ones that are deeper right the ones that are you getting down into the rock layers you know whatever you know uh, hundreds of meters or uh below the surface uh, those are the ones that have taken you know thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands and in some cases millions of years to to uh to fill up and we're, we're burning through it you know, it's those deeper ones that are the concern. I guess we're not going to be refilling those. So, so in, in the U.S., yeah, you've got the aquifers, a lot of irrigated properties in the U.S. In Australia, most of our agriculture generally is rain-fed. It's not irrigated for, for the most part. There's still a lot of irrigation, but the majority of our crops will be rain-fed as opposed to irrigation-fed. In in the U.S., though, like sort of the central Midwest, is a lot of irrigation, yeah, and a, and a mm -hmm. lot of but also a lot of different types of not just crops, but you obviously you've got feedlots which use a lot of water. You've also got um, coal seam gas, which um, uses a lot of water. The, as the well. fracking, you mean? Fracking, fracking sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so they must be going through a lot of water as well. Yep. Um, so uh, I'm not sure what the what the question was. Rain fed versus irrigated. No, I'll I, I just mention that we, we we are rain fed, so it doesn't really make a huge difference. Yeah. But in, in the yes. U.S., well, I guess at the moment in the U.S., I'm led to believe that a lot of a lot of pooling water from aquifers is largely unregulated. You just drill a yeah, pipe, it's... drill a pipe, and take what well, you want. Is that the yeah, case? It's it's it's, it's changing. Um, California was the last place, which was uh, you know sort of the wild west, but in 2014. California passed the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, but it still hasn't fully kicked in. There are a lot of places in uh, around the United States where you can just drill a well and, and pump. You know, if you're not, it, there's plenty of unregulated areas where you can drill a well and pump and and pump away to your to your heart's delight. So, so you know, the story, especially in the southwestern part uh, of the United States, and just include Texas in that, and you know, Texas and New Mexico, and Arizona, Utah. Nevada, California, um, very, very dry in the midst of a, uh, a mega drought, which is a drought, right, which, you know, you're familiar with, like lasting a couple of decades. Um, and that groundwater is disappearing. And, and so these places that rely on water, whether it's for municipal water use or whether it's for agriculture, it's, you know, it's, it's running out and it's no, no longer business as usual. Getting that message across is super, super hard. So yeah, everything is at risk. It's not just ag. I mean, it's, it's water and gas, it's industry, right? I mean, there's all kinds of, I mean, we need water to run our economy everywhere. Hmm. There's no, there's no way around it. Um, wasn't that, lo wasn't that long ago, Jay, that in South Africa, that they were approaching what they were calling day yeah. zero or whatever. And, and, um, yeah. You know, that, that seems to have abated now. And it was the same, at the same time, actually, we had we were going through a drought in parts of Australia and New South Wales where there were towns in Australia that were in a similar scenario that had to cart water in. Um, is that, 
that is that is that what you're saying is over time if we keep depleting these aquifers that we're going to find that happening more and more frequently is that the concern yeah well it's huge concern there's two uh main roles that the groundwater plays one is basically like a buffer against drought so many parts of the world it's it's exactly that and so if you are deplete that buffer and you know that you have no buffer um but uh also you know, we rely on it a little too much to supplement available surface water and then grow even more, grow even more food. Um, and so all of that, all of that is at, all of that is at risk. So, you know, this increasing frequency of flooding and drought, you know, we see it all over the world. You're seeing it in Australia, you know, this great uh, tragedy in Canada last summer. By the way, we don't irrigate much in Canada either. We use a lot of groundwater, but it's mostly for about a third of the Canadian population relies on on groundwater for um, uh, for for drinking water, yep. but um, not so much for for irrigation, and that's becoming a problem because of, like the monster drought we had in Saskatchewan, we had zero. Saskatchewan's like Nebraska, by the way, right? So it's like you know just an extension of the plants. We grow a lot of canola, uh, a lot of pulse, a lot of pulse crops. Zero productivity. So when you're thinking about sustainable food production, you know you you get to wonder about, especially a place like Saskatchewan, like we're actually thinking about. Adding in, adding in irrigation. Um, we 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 had a what, we had a friend uh, of of ours from Saskatchewan, and we probably I actually spoke to him this morning uh, just before we came on, and uh, he was telling me that it's very wet just now, but I remember this yeah. time this time last year talking to him, and he'd been in the grains industry for twenty thirty years, and he was asking us questions. What do you do in a drought? We haven't had one in. Yep. We haven't had one in yeah. 20 years. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, it was, it was brutal. And, I and drove it, across, my wife and I drove across, we drove across, uh, you know, drove across the prairies and down into, uh, across the Western U.S. and down into California last summer. Just like the apocalypse. I mean, everything was on fire and smoke. And it was pretty surreal. And we, we, we're pretty used to it in Australia. <laughs> You know, I just wanted to get back to the, uh, the changing extremes and give the example of like uh, British Columbia last year, this little town actually like burned down. And then a couple of months later, you know, you probably know about the monstrous flood in the, mm. in the Fraser Valley. And it really had a huge impact on, on agriculture and the, in the dairy industry there. So, you know, you probably saw the pictures of the, you know, cows, cows getting flooded mm. and stranded and all that. Mm. So, so yeah, we, it's, we it's said, tough. We we said about uh, we mentioned desalinity in um, or, or desalination um, plants at the start there, and you said that it's not really a you know it's, it works in some places but not in others type thing. And it's an interesting one because in Victoria, in in the last significant drought, I guess the Victorian government um, commissioned a desalinity plant, and I don't desalination. Think, yeah, yeah, that's what, yeah, that's what I meant. Desalination. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't I don't think it's it, actually ever it, been used yet. No, it right? did. Yeah. They did. They had it. They, they, they built it in two thousand eight, round about then, when the drought was on. Yeah. And then I think they turned it on in two thousand eighteen for uh, for a brief period of time. For for really brief time, for about. Yeah. I think by the time they started commissioning it back up, it already started raining again. Right, but you're saying it's so. Uh, yeah. Is it is the issue there that um, it doesn't like? It, is it is it a cost issue in some areas, or is it? Yeah, why do you say it doesn't work in some, or it works in others? What's the what's the? That's not a solution, is what I'm saying, right? So why is it not a solution? I think it's a solution in metropolitan regions. Um, I mean, it has its it has it has its cons, which are uh, it's expensive, it's energy intensive. You have to do something with the brines. But I think in uh, in urban areas, uh, metropolitan regions, I think it's really, really important. Um, the reason I say it's not a solution everywhere is I'm thinking specifically about agriculture because agriculture just uses so much water. And so I just think we really need to be hitting conservation and efficiency extremely hard. I don't think there's you know enough water, enough capacity to be doing desal and you know, dealing with all those brines. Is that uh, is that the same? Is that the same for using wastewater and repurposing wastewater it is. is yeah so you right what's the source of wastewater it's it's humans right and so you need the human waste and there's not enough to fuel <laughs> right agriculture yeah. all through, right okay through human waste so that's why it's it's great i mean it works really really well in cities where you've got concentrated and, and so I, yeah right yeah and so I, I think the same thing with desal like you know you have this portfolio um and that can include um, 
measures on the on the demand side as well. Um, and the, the mix is 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 going to vary from from place to place. So, so going back to the Grace program uh, again. Uh, so, so I read that about a third of the aquifers were effectively empty when you're looking at the change, or not empty, sorry, reducing in 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 in, in yeah, fill. actually over half, yeah. over half. So, whereabouts are the worst ones? Is there a specific areas where it's worse than others, or? Yeah, well, so the bad news is that um, the worst ones are spread over over all the all the continents, but the ones that always come to mind as the worst are always like start with northwestern India, um, the Middle East, and that includes Turkey, Syria, Iraq, you know, around the Caspian Aral seas. Uh, the North China Plain um, in, in Beijing, in the United States, um, the Central Valley in California, and the southern part of the High Plains of the Ogallala um, Aquifer. Those are, those are among the worst off. So th- those, those are all areas where, just off the top of my head, you've got Middle East clearly has its own political instability as it is. It is a net import of food as is, but it's still like the Middle East still produces reasonable quantities of grains for their own consumption. You know, Egypt produces yep. I think twenty percent of their requirements. So if you start to lose that water, then that increases their demand for grain for imports. Yep. At a time when yeah. world yeah. is is producing. It's tough. Less. Yeah, it's it's tough. Oh. oh, you know, interestingly, one of the signals that's become very strong over the last few years is the signal over Ukraine. Um, so the drought signal over Ukraine. So, yeah, I mean, it, it throws the whole food security thing. I, I always say um, when people talk about solutions, if this were a world where we could all hold hands and we could say like, hey, we'll grow this, you know, we'll do our livestock in Australia. We'll grow our, you know, our citrus. We'll, we'll grow in, you know, the Mediterranean and our grains will, you know, we'll grow in, in the Great Plains of the United States and we'll all share food. That would be wonderful. That's not the way the world works, and so that's wasn't the it, risk. Wasn't the the president of the World Bank? I think a comment in the two thousands there, where he said that the wars of the twentieth century were fought over oil, and the wars of the twenty first century will be fought over water. Is that like just you saying where some of those worst case aquifers are are in areas that already got some significant conflict, as Andrew said? So are we yeah. are we heading towards that situation where it's going to cause stresses to countries that are going to then react? Um, well, yeah. the, absolutely. The stresses, it's really just how they how they come together and how they, you know, interact is, you know, that's that's the answer to the question. And we don't we don't know. So my colleagues who study uh, water and conflict are 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 pretty clear that, you know, there's been really no major wars fought over water in you know, however many scores of years or you know, centuries. Um, but I always counter with, you know what, there's plenty of news about small scale skirmishes that are happening all over the world. Um, and even the stuff that doesn't get reported. So, you know, my fear is uh, with the increasing stress, um, a lot of the, the signals that we see from the Grace Mission are transboundary, they cross political boundaries, right? So either within a country across different states, like in the United States and the Southwest, or, you know, use the Middle East. I mentioned Turkey, Syria, Iraq, you know, uh, India, uh, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh. Um, I think there's huge, um, there's a lot of potential for conflict there. And, and the optimist in me <laughs> hopes to see that we use it as a, use this as an opportunity for collaboration rather than conflict because solving working on these problems together is in our mutual interest is it is I'd, it true is, is it I'm, true jay that um that canada has the highest level of freshwater per capita is that a true is that factually yeah correct but you know is, is that what is that why you're in canada it's, uh uh no um so he's, he's there for the protein <laughs> i'm in saskatoon for the for the weather uh so uh yeah, we have a lot of water, but there's a myth there about our water security. So like most of the waters, the groundwater and the surface water is contaminated or polluted. We don't have a national scale flood forecasting system. We have tremendous problems with indigenous water rights. Um, 
So, you know, it goes on. We have uh, tremendous problems with climate change. Canada is warming. It's twice the global rate. And the prairies where I live, three times the global rate. So everything is changing. We're working hard to help prepare the nation. But, um, you know, we dump billion, like I think it's like a billion liters of raw sewage into the ocean every five years. Like it's, 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 it's crazy. A Sorry, billion could, liters. Could be a, no, no. It could be a trillion. Let's uh, let's do a fact check on that. Yeah, okay, a lot. Yeah. I don't. I, I'm yeah, glad, a I, lot. I'm I'm not yeah. a swimmer, so I'm glad I'm not swimming. Yeah, the now. other. It's the other. <laughs> you know, I learned of it in the other Victoria, uh, Victoria, BC. You know, visiting, and they're like, you know, telling me about how there's no sewage treatment plant. This beautiful, right, uh, coastline in in British Columbia, Canada, and yeah, you know, we're discharging raw sewage. It's crazy. Lovely. Thanks for yeah, thank, thanks for that uh, tourist board uh, yeah, advertisement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come, not, come come to not, come to Canada and go swimming. <laughs> I am not a member of the Chamber of Commerce for Victoria. <laughs> the uh, just but going back to again back to food, yeah. I guess I I I I I, I like your idea of optimism and people collaborating. I don't fancy your chances, to be honest. I know. Uh, I know. <laughs> that, that's just the reality of. Of, of yep. human beings but but going yeah. back to like we obviously at the moment we produce we, we actually produce an abundance of food in a general year it's just like you said it's in the wrong places and there's logistical flows and then there's largely a lot of geopolitical issues however it must be it would be tough for any farmer to in, in the midwest of the usa to say right i'm not going to uh, suck up as much water because then they're not going to produce enough because water is yield. And yeah. that is that we've got this sort of challenge of being more efficient with water. But at the same time, we also need to produce enough to feed a growing population. And so it really is, how do you solve that task? Yeah, it's not I don't have an answer. Yeah, I don't have an answer. I mean, we write research proposals on it and, and uh Try like that's a big thing for us here at the University of Saskatchewan. We have a big water institute that I'm the director of. We have a big food institute. We've got a very strong uh, water research program, a very strong agricultural uh, research program, and we're trying to get together to answer some of these questions. and And it's really difficult. Um, you know, we're focused a lot on crop breeding here at the uh, University of Saskatchewan, trying to trying to breed more uh, drought tolerant, saline tolerant crops. We're working on irrigation efficiency, trying to understand what happens, interactions in the root zone and the soil plant water um, continuum. It's it's really hard. Um, so, but I do think that agriculture uses so much water. And again, this is not about like, oh, agriculture, you're the bad guys. It's not that at all. We have to grow food for a growing population, just like you said, in the face of climate change. I just don't think we can do it like, you know, agriculture. Yeah, you know, hydrologists, water people need to be talking to food people, need to be talking to energy people to solve these problems because they're all intimately linked. Um, you know, we have to work it out, but even small changes in, in efficiency can lead to, because we use so much water to grow food, can lead to huge changes in, in water and savings. And that, that's what we've seen. And if you, if you look at countries around the world, if you look at Australia and probably Israel, they're two nations which have had no choice uh, but become efficient. So we, in, interestingly enough, a lot of our farmers will use the term WUE or water use efficiency yeah. as sure. as their benchmark. And and it's not about yield. It's well, how many kilos per hundred millimeters of water do we get? And and I think in Australia, just even talking to a friend in Canada who just didn't understand drought at all. In Australia, we get it. You know, what have we had in the last five years, Matt? Three fantastic years. Mm. Two absolutely terrible years, but mm. the ten years I've been in Australia, there's been three droughts. Yep, yep. And uh, it, it forces you, sort of, it forces you to be necessarily sort of efficient with water. But like you say, we're producing yields even in a drought year that we wouldn't have produced twenty years ago through various technologies. So I guess that's that's the way. Is if you. <laughs> If you don't have the need, like if you have an aquifer under your ground and you can just suck as much water yep. as possible, well, why? there's no incentive. Yeah, why would you do anything else? There's no incentive. And, and so that's the part that has to change, really. So it's that management part. Um, 
Because exactly. I mean, if you're a business person and you have a free input or, you know, relatively inexpensive input, that's one of your key inputs and no one's telling you not to use it, you're going to use it. It's a bit. It's a bit like in the U.S. Everybody drives big muscle cars and V8s and whatever, oh, because yeah. gas is gas is cheap. But in the U.K., we drive yeah. little tiny yeah. one one liter engines because petrol's too cheap, eh, too expensive. So it's necessity in in driving that. Yep. So yeah. so so looking at say things like the, I guess the high plains aquifer, yeah, a lot of, lot of corn, a lot of grain growing around there. So when when is that going to be empty? Um, so there have been, uh, people have been predicting its demise for some time and maybe 10 years ago, people were saying about 30 years. Uh, and, and that's probably true. I mean, I do think that that's a region that, especially the Southern part again, so like the Texas panhandle, Oklahoma panhandle, and say the Southern half of Kansas, uh, that knows its water supply pretty well. And it has basically made a decision to, uh, manage it to depletion. Um, so, you know, the upside of that is they know what they're doing and they're doing it intentionally. So, um, so, so it could be like 20, 25 years. So the upside for us as Australians, Australian people in agricultural markets is that yields will drop in the U.S. And <laughs> in 20 years time. In, in 20 years time. <laughs> oh, hey, totally. Matt, no, I'm, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still I, young, I Matt. I try to sell that. <laughs> I try to, I, you know, I point that out in Canada as well that like there's you know for these aquifers that are running out of water you know project forward 10 20 years it's just going to be so expensive to pump that water out uh the the quality of the water is going to decline there's going to be a food you know a food gap and the places that have water are going to be or manage it well are going to be well positioned to to you know to to meet that food gap and so, I try to, you know, advocate for that here in Canada to get to get ready and to figure out how to do it sustainably, so we can do it for the long term. So we'll have to, Matt. We'll have to sort of work out how we can get some go long wheat futures and corn futures for well, 20, yeah, 20, yeah, 20, yeah. 2040. 2040. I, I don't know if it goes out that far, the forward curve, but we can, we can try. Um, yeah. So, so it is a major concern, and there's not much we can really do about it unless we plan it. I think that's the key. So I, I actually think there's a lot we can do about it. We just have to be thoughtful about, you know, if you're worried about groundwater and water supply for any, and you should be all over the world, you know, step one is to basically figure out how much you have. And mm. that is like a, a fundamental step that so many regions around the world have just not done. Um, so, um, you know, I, I'm appalled by, by that because if these were oil reservoirs, they'd be fully, plumbed and explored and probed and so but figure out how much you have and then you know how much is accessible and and think about how you know region needs to come together get its stakeholders and politicians and environmental decision makers and you know work together to figure out how you want to manage it so i sort of mentioned there about what were the worst ones yeah is there any that are doing well that are increasing in, in sort of size sure yeah i mean there are many places around the world they saw a north you know the high latitudes and like the Russia, tropics are so right? yeah yeah um um the high latitudes in the tropics are getting wetter uh and so there are you know any of the groundwater you know the problem there with the climate change is less about groundwater more about flooding mm. and the increasing frequency of flooding so yeah i mean there are places, there it is, I, I call it like the haves and the have-nots, right? There's this global picture of the high latitudes and low latitudes getting wetter, mid-latitudes getting drier, and then all these hot spots for, you know, groundwater depletion or flooding or drought sort of sprinkled on top of that background. So, so if you look at those aquifers, you know, in Siberia and Russia, effectively, uh, those are filling up or those are strong because i was just I, wondering i'd have to yeah i'd have to look pretty closely and uh, by the way there's not a lot of access to data so yeah. um, <laughs> less less now i imagine than yeah than, than four yes, months ago and, you know i don't i'm not sure i want to comment on it you know lest i find myself with the poison doorknob or something so <laughs> yeah. or umbrella anyway. yeah yeah uh, <laughs> uh, the because it's because it's interesting because because we we had a discussion with uh, a colleague of ours uh, probably last year 
was it with Andre? Mm. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. And uh, it was interesting to talk to to him about it, um, uh, because they're finding that in Russia, climate change has actually been beneficial to Russia, in in the fact that they can produce crops that are much stronger than they'd previously been, higher yielding, uh, larger areas because well, the snow cover isn't as bad as it used to be. The permafrost isn't there. And, and and speaking to Melbourne Uni, they're doing some work at the moment as well, looking specifically at Australia. And they're looking at it and saying, well, what areas are going to be better from climate change and which ones are going to be worse in Australia? And and I guess that's the thing. That's exactly the same with the groundwater. It's some areas are going to find benefits from it and some are going to unfortunately yep. be. But yep. by, the, by the sounds of it, it seems that more areas are going to be suffering from it than benefiting. Um. It, yeah, I I think so, and I think the the lack of um, uh, policy framework um, makes it makes it a problem. But you know, there's a um, there's a urgency, and you know, myself and colleagues around the world are working at you know advocating for sustainable groundwater management to specifically address these problems. But your point about like you know who's going to get better, who's going to get worse? We've even written some papers on global change impacts on on aquifers. And it all comes down to the climate change projections. Are they good on a regional basis? Um, what they don't, what those uh, projections don't really include are policy changes that might have a big impact. That's the kind of stuff that's really hard to predict. Human behavior, how farmers, you know, are they going to adopt these new methods or financial incentives? None of that stuff is, is included in there. So I, I'd say it's all, all fairly uncertain. And if I just look at the pattern, so we've been looking at it for twenty years, they have not changed. Well, there's also uh, there's also the there's also the problem, Joe, that you get a change of government with a different view sometimes, and then all all uh, what has happened over the last yep. you know few years changes again to something different. Yep, and you know we don't have like a global or regional. You know what we really need for groundwater is sort of I've written proposals on this. I'm actually writing a proposal on it right now for a global you know, groundwater sustainability coalition, because there's really no like institutions out there um, that really have, have any teeth. And, you know, we're just trying to see what we can do, pull together transdisciplinary, meaning academic and outside of academics. So NGOs, government, so, uh, on, to try on, to figure out what we can do in some of these aquifers. So you've got those, we actually spoke about it on the last podcast about the UN 17 sustainable development goals. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. Is water use efficiency involved in there or is that just part of environment uh no i mean there's the clean water and, clean water. and uh yeah and, and sanitation uh, which is sdg number six and if you you know dig through there there's you know there's water sustainability as part of it uh, so i i think the challenge is to you know to get to get people engaged and to you know get different countries to buy to buy into that um you know one challenge i think we face is that we have so much information overload today <laughs> that it's really hard to get people to focus on any one thing. So climate change, you know, you know, impending doom, but there's a tremendous amount of focus on carbon, rightly so. You know, water is sort of like whatever down, you know, down the list. Because most of most of us can still open the tap and and the developed exactly. world, we can all. And it comes out right. You'll, you'll have to yeah, get better it, on better on TikTok to um, spread the message, Joe. That is not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's, that's just not going to happen. But it is interesting because, like, going back to what you said there about that information overload, you sort of look at the last. Let's look at the last four years. Yeah, you've had COVID, floods, droughts, uh, war. Um, yeah. In Australia now, we've got animal diseases on the border. And so you start yep. to think there's so many different things that have been yep. and con concerning issues. Add, and it, and it's, yeah, it, let me add, if you're an American, you, you, also had to you had to deal with Trump. And it, it's right. And well, so if, think if, about if, if you're anywhere in the world, you had to deal with Trump. <laughs> so think about, you know, I mean, that's a huge distraction. And so, you know, when I was in the U.S., um, I spent a lot of time going to uh, Washington, D.C. and trying to understand the network. And it was it was it was mostly about educating and briefing. And like, here's here's these maps. Here's what's going on. Um, and they were overloaded. Right. So you mm. go visit different Congress members and like, you know, they have a line of people like me 
with different important issues to discuss. And I just found it to be really difficult to elevate, you know, to the to get that elevation that was consistent with the urgency of the problem. And that's the thing with, with all policymakers around the world is the fact that there is so many things and they're only going to look at the things that they can have a quick, easy solution. And that's the reality of it. I, I, quick that, fix. In that political, right, in, that, in their right in their term, if they want to do something, it's not going to be some hefty water legislation that uh, that impedes upon water rights and would require a new policy. The reason the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act passed was because there was a, in California, it was because there was a confluence of like terrible drought, tremendous groundwater depletion, people like me actually helping visualize what was going on and writing about it uh, for in opinion pieces. A government that wanted a governor that was that was on point, media that was on point, you know, a state governing board called the State Water Resources Control Board. Everyone was on point. So bang, you know, it happened. But you don't often have that convergence um, that and, is sometimes and, required to, to elevate. Until something goes wrong. Yes. Until until right. you start feeling it, until you start seeing it. Uh, yeah. Like I'll give you an example. Matt and I have been talking a lot about foot and mouth disease, which is a disease which uh, impacts um cloven foot animals so goats sheep deer oh. uh, cattle and uh, highly infectious and uh, it's on the borders of australia there's we're trying to get the same thing get the message out of it's important that we're concerned about this because from my background i come from scotland and we were massively infected by, impacted by it and we saw millions of animals culled and but unless you've seen that unless you've seen the issues that's caused, it's really hard to put, comprehend it in your mind. It's just an etheric sort of thing that is out there. And um, and that's when California's case, you had a, a long drought. But I guess, looking back on California, I guess I see similar parallels with parts of Australia. In that in Australia, we've switching more and more to, uh, what do you call them? Uh, longer term crops, almonds, um, tree crops. Perennials. Perennials, yeah, yeah that's yeah. the word, yeah. yeah. Uh, how much of an impact does that have? Because obviously you can't switch it off. You've got to use that water every year. Yeah, it's huge. It's it's huge. Um, so exactly, right? You can't you can't uh, just turn it off. You have to have to irrigate or, you know, they, they need water every year. Uh, so, and uh, I personally don't understand the global demand for for nuts um i don't know if it's as great i mean if you it's gone nuts drove through <laughs> yes uh, if you drove through the southern half of the central valley that's like all you would say pistachios and almonds and, and walnuts and you would think that like that was like the main crop that people and you know if, if uh if uh, aliens came you would think that humans on earth just ate nuts um so i you know, I, I and, and and drank wine. Um, so, well, that's kind uh, of true. <laughs> uh, no, it's an issue. I'm sorry, um, but right, it's the it's the it's the orchard crops that use a tremendous amount of water. So again, it, you know, I think it, we don't really have this sort of, I don't know about Australia, but certainly in the United States and Canada, we don't have this sort of balance between. It's, it's basically market driven. We don't have a balance between, like how much water is available, what food do we want to grow for our country? It's not about that. How many calories? Where's the nutrition? We don't do any of that. And I mean, it seems like a great idea, but like we don't, we don't do it. So it's free, you know, it's free market. Yeah, so so uh, like, I'm not even going to touch on the Australian water market in the slightest. No, 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 no. Because A, people will shout at us and, yes. and tell us off. B, it's so complicated that every time I try and understand it, and and Matt and I look at markets all the time, we uh, we just don't. It's just it's just so complicated. We have a whole system of entitlements to water. Uh, Matt and I actually own some water entitlements for our farm. Mm, they do. Uh, but you have permanent entitlements, high security entitlements. Uh, this is all from the river system, though, as opposed to aquifers. And it is one of those contentious issues that it's. Another one that's going to come up because we've had a new government. They're all mm. going to be looking at that all again because we have set months of water. We're, I think we're half right, half there, in that we have water that is kept for the environment. 
So we want a certain amount of water going through the system from the north of the country down to the south, and then the certain amounts that can come out of it. But we're the same that we have seen a lot more of those permanent plantings in the last 10 years, a lot of investment largely from, I would say, U.S. and Canadian investors hmm. in, into those alm- almonds and, 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 and whatnot. Yeah. But That's I guess, what we need. We need more almonds. Yeah. Well, we definitely <laughs> like we need we need almond coffee every morning, and uh, and I guess that is that is the issue is maybe we've in Australia we've seen it happening in California and hopefully we're adapting to it a little bit better, but it does make a big issue because of the fact that those permanent plantings they've bought large entitlements of the water, which means in a drought year when dairy farmers or whoever else may need some of that water they can't get access to it because it's a too prohibitively expensive because it's again like you say market rates so it's an interesting it's an interesting sort of uh, issue but at the moment nobody's really talking about it because we've had so much rainfall um i just i, I would remind i would remind uh any listeners out there that are a bit you know kind of speculating on whether this is a serious concern or not Almost every disaster movie starts off with a scientist telling you there's going to be an issue and they don't get listened to. And here we are. We've got one telling us there's an issue. We've got a a rocket surgeon on. (laughs) A rocket scientist. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's not rocket Uh, science. We should just be saving the water. Yeah. It is rocket science. uh, so you know, if you saw the movie Don't Don't Look Up, you're right, same, same thing, right? It's Leonardo DiCaprio and and uh same same thing like you know trying to warn people you know there's so much of that movie that really resonated with me and specifically going to congress and showing these maps and saying like you know talking to the foreign relations committee and showing them the maps of the middle east and the water stress there just it's so much worse than people realized basically saying like i predict conflict you know in the next few years and just you know it's the overload that the Congress members face, that the policymakers face. Like, you know, basically I was dismissed with the, hey, let's take a picture and thanks for coming by. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, again, it's really tough to get that attention. That's why, you know, podcasts like this are, are great. Um, and, that's, you know, you mentioned all the various media things that, that I've done. That's the reason. It's to get the message out. So the public outreach that would be because that's a big that's a, that's a awareness big, yeah that's a, that's a big thing in academia at the moment is yeah. actually actually converting academic research into practical solutions and public awareness so that is why you've yep. done so much public sort of work is is just to exactly. get the message out there oh it's all about yeah I mean it's just like I see this stuff I have the you know the privilege to work with this data but you know you've got that you do I I feel the communication. Um, by scientists is a responsibility. Uh, one, one quick, we're, we're sort of running close to time. I had one quick question and you, and you don't need to answer this just now. You can take it on notice. It's uh, it's, it's sausage, right? Oh, it's sausage. sorry. <laughs> we're, it's closely related actually. Uh, <laughs> out, out of all the places in the world, yeah? Like I was raised in, in Southwest Scotland. I think we had uh, 1,100 millimetres of rain per year. It doesn't, it rains every day. Mm. So so how do you get a country like Scotland, yeah, which is just miserable and wet and grey every single day, how do you get them to think about water when, well, it doesn't seem like an issue to them? And there must be other places in the world like that as well, like, Ballarat. Well, I mean, even, you know, even in, in my family, they're from the northeastern part of the United States. And, you know, my brother would say the same thing. Why should I care about water? I look outside and, you know, I see these rivers and we're close to the ocean and the Mississippi River is huge. Yeah, it's a huge challenge. It is. I do not have the answer. You have to be I think you have to, you know, be a person you know, maybe that's part of all of our jobs is to help people understand exactly why they they should. Maybe it's going to be food. Maybe it's going to be, you know, the cost of some goods. You know, everything relies on water. Um, and I, I, I struggle to, yeah. to answer that, to answer that question. I, I don't know. But you I, know, guess, I guess part, I... people have to be globally aware. And then maybe really realize how it impacts them. If you can find the common ground where 
this is important to you because you know you're whatever you're almonds <laughs> gonna become more expensive from australia <laughs> that's right those almonds that you're like making into almond milk you know it's gonna go from whatever five dollars a liter to 25 dollars a liter maybe you're gonna get their attention yeah, but I guess, yeah. Certainly by talking about expenses and costs, you'll get the Scottish people's attention. Well, you've got my attention. It made me set up. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but no, I think it's, I think it is, an, that's the reason why we got you on to talk to you is because I think it is an important topic. And I think it's one that we think about, like we, we're, everyone's talking about climate change. It's definitely on the radar now. The Australian election was probably one off the back of the want for climate change uh, adaption or, or, or climate change policy. Uh, so, so and, and there's a lot of people who are climate change deniers. And I say the same thing as I said on the last week's podcast, it doesn't really matter if you believe it or not. If the general consensus is that you believe it, well, you might as well be involved in that policy decision making. And this is another one where, you know, I think it's, it's hand in hand with, with, with climate change, water. Uh, but it is one that is probably the one that has the most potential to have that really immediate effect on places as droughts become widespread and, and as, as, as things change. So it is a really good, good, interesting discussion to have. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I mean, it's been a pleasure to talk about it and to, and to uh, you know, help get, that, help get that message out, raise the awareness. And, you know, you ask a good question, like, why should, why should someone in Scotland care? Why should someone who lives in a place that, that's raining all the time, why should they care? That's, the, you know, that's, that's on us to figure that out. Well, we shall see. We'll, we'll come back in 20 years and we'll find out. Um, I feel a bit bad because I've drank a bottle of water this morning whilst doing this podcast and uh, maybe I should have saved it. Should have stuck with your almond latte. Should have. Well, oat latte. That's it. All right. right. No, that was fantastic. It was great having you on, Jay. And I think we'll wrap it up. Uh, but um, appreciate but I, you coming on. And I definitely recommend. My pleasure. I de- definitely recommend the What About Water podcast. podcast. Uh, Thanks so much. We, we'll plug it on the old Twitter. Uh, and uh, it's definitely a good listening because it covers a lot of different topics. There's a really interesting one on water futures in California, which was back in March that I found really interesting as a, as a markets-based commentator. But no, thanks for coming along, Jay, and taking the time out. And, uh, well, let's hope it just continues to rain. There you go. <laughs> Keep our fingers crossed, but not too much. It has to be the perfect amount. Perfect. Rain, exactly. makes, rain makes grain. Exactly. See you when you got nothing on. Cheerio. <laughs> thanks so much.